From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, On Health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. I'm not going to lie. I was much more prepared for puberty, pregnancy, motherhood, and even menopause than I was for, let's just say, air quotes, aging. And you all know that's a big deal to say because we're so largely unprepared for all those other phases too. But the reality is we're aging from the day we're born. And much of what we've internalized about aging, myself too, the fears, judgments, stereotypes, and even a lot of the symptoms, if you will, have much more to do with the culture of ageism that we're steeped in from the time we're little, whether it's because we're you know, scared of the old hag witch in the woods who lures children by day and eats them by night in fairy tales, to the anti-aging creams that women are already now using in their 20s and younger. And I'm telling you, as a women's health doctor, flood my inbox for Instagram as like suggested things to follow. And I'm like, No, thank you. And all of this is thanks to an industry that instills in us that aging is ugly. My guest today, Karen Walrand, is the author of Radiant Rebellion, Reclaim Aging, Practice Joy, and Raise a Little Hell, an investigation into how we can resist ageism and live a light-filled life along the way. And I don't say this often or lightly, and you all know this, this book has blown my mind. And I gave Karen permission to curse in this episode. So warning, if you have littles listening, hit pause right now. It has blown my fucking mind. It was exactly the dose of vitality and fire I needed right now. A mind shift on my own journey of aging proudly and powerfully while I also navigate all that means in our culture. And in work that puts me in front of the camera and on video and in the media. And that's a lot when you're surrounded by 20-somethings and 30-somethings who are already getting plastics and Botox and all the things. I truly believe every woman over 20 in our culture should read this book, gift it, share it, talk about it, and then read it again. And then as my guest says, raise a little hell, or as I'm saying, raise a lot of hell. You'll see what I mean. Welcome, Karen. And Let's dive into this right off. Oh my gosh, what an amazing introduction. Thank you. I am thrilled to be here. Oh my gosh, I can't tell you it. Like, I love my body. I'm a midwife. I love women's bodies. I have friends and people in my life of all ages. And there's like that proverbial <gasps> every now and then when I'm like, oh, my neck looks a little different or my hair is a little thinner. And it's like, It's really shocking to me how affected I am by that. I never anticipated that I miss like nature, love nature, love my body would feel that way. And also even more for me as something that deeply has resonated with your book is I'm already kind of like a perfectionist urgency culture person. And I really have to work on that in myself. And I'm very mission driven. And I'm like, oh, I'm 57. I've got to do all this. I got to do all that. And My husband's actually 10 years older. So I also have to remind myself like there's time, there's space. This is not a race to the finish. And your book has really been like this deep balm for me at a time that I've already kind of recommitted to creating more glow and rewilding of myself. So I can't thank you enough for your book. And I haven't picked up a book in a long time that I thought, okay, I feel 100% felt and seen. So I want to stop talking and hear about your personal journey because you had a glance in the mirror moment in your life. And can you take us on that journey? Yeah. 
So thank you so much for that. And I, I, I loved hearing that I love the word balm. I'm glad that's how you felt because that's what I hoped for people when they read the book. I like you am a person that has never really worried that much about getting older. I've always enjoyed my birthday. I've always, I've just never had a big thing about getting older, but I wrote this book last year in 2022 and It was a really, really big year for me. I was turning 55 in 2022. My marriage was turning 20. And my daughter, only child, was turning 18 and graduating high school and going off to college. So so there was that, right? A lot of things were happening. And I was very excited about all of them. But I found that when I told people about all those things that were happening, they were only happy about one thing. And the only thing they seemed to be happy about was the 20-year marriage. Like when I turned 55, people were like, ooh, double nickels. How are you feeling? Are you okay with that? Right? Or my daughter graduating, like, oh, mama, are you okay? She's leaving. And, and I was like, that that was always the goal, right? Like the goal was always that she would graduate high school and go to a college. And so I was really interested in, one, why people felt the way they did about aging when I didn't. But also, two, there was a part of me that was like, well, what if they're right? Like, what if it is all awful? And I'm just, I, it just hasn't hit me yet. So what are some of the things that I can do to make sure that I stay as optimistic as I do? And so really that's what I'm wrestling with the, with the book. I talk to experts and take their advice and sort of listen to kind of what aging is mean and how it's changed over time. So that's what the book was. Now, the mirror thing that you were talking about was- Not what people would think, right? It's not what people would think. And I love that <laughs> about this little story. What was really interesting about that, so about a year earlier- yeah, maybe a couple years earlier. I live in Houston, Texas, and in 2017, I think it was, Hurricane Harvey came to Houston and obliterated the city and we were casualties of Hurricane Harvey. We lost everything in our home. We lost absolutely everything. Then it was like sort of the end of the summer of 2017. 2018 was really spent trying to rebuild, right? Like rebuild a home, literally like getting everything from the ground up. We had to raise the ruin that was our house and rebuild. I can't even imagine. It it was bananas. I remember like wading through the water and thinking, I've seen pictures of this on the news, like where other people are flooded and walking through the water and now it's me. So 2018 was all about rebuilding. And if you've ever been in any sort of catastrophic situation, whether or not it's a, a you know, a health scare or something like that. People always like to say, you're so brave. But in my opinion, you just put one foot in front of the other, right? Like you're in it. You don't even think about, well, what's the brave thing I can do today? It's just, I got to just deal with it, right? And so 2018 was all about just dealing with it. And at the end of the year, I was in our new house and I walked by a mirror and sort of started at the reflection, like I thought, my first thought was, who is that person? And then I realized it was me. And my first thought was, oh, I've aged. This whole experience has aged me. And so then I, you know, I'm staring in the mirror and I was like, let me see where those signs of aging are. And I couldn't really find them. It was like, I was still dyeing my hair at the time. So my hair was black and, you know, I don't have many wrinkles and still didn't. And so I was like, what is it that made me say that, that I'm aging? And I'm not actually seeing any sign, like true signs of aging, like white hair or wrinkles. And I was like, oh, that's not age, that's stress. That's what I'm seeing, right? And it it made me wonder about how often we conflate the two, right? That we look at something and go, look at ourselves and go, oh, I've aged. When what you're actually looking at is the effects of stress on your body. So for 2019, I decided I'm going to figure out what I can do to reverse stress because it was actually really exciting for me because I thought, well, I can't reverse age because age is going to age, but maybe I can reverse stress. And so I just, little things like drinking a lot more water, trying to move more, trying to sleep. I'm a huge evangelist for sleep, like making sure I get eight hours of sleep a night. And a year later, a friend of mine looked at me and she said, "What what's going on with you? What have you done? And I said, I've not done anything. She goes, no, 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 no what have you done? Like, there's something going on. You're looking really good. You're, And I told her the story and I said, you know, I realized it wasn't age. She And she interrupted me. She goes, your pilot light had gone out. And I was like, that's exactly it. And the last year I've been trying to relight my pilot light. And so much of the writing the book was about that sort of caretaking of my pilot light and really coming to the understanding that 
again, age is going to age. I think if we really were honest with ourselves, it's not the aging that we are worried about. It's the losing of that vibrancy and how can we take care of that? Because that you can have at any age, right? Like you can be a vibrant, glowy person at 150 if you want it to be. And that I think is what we really want. And I, I don't know about you, but I have no desire to look 20 again. I have no desire to look five again, but I do want to look like I enjoy my life and that I'm taking care of myself. That I definitely want. And so that's really sort of what I was wrestling with in the book. I love that. I had a a similar but different experience in that I hadn't done any photos for my website in quite a few years. And it's funny, um, right before COVID, I was turning 54 and I'm 57 now. And I was so excited about my 54th birthday because I'm a born and raised New Yorker. And girl, like I was in it. I was 12 in the disco era in the city and Studio 54 was everything. Not that I've ever been, but like that vibe. (laughs) And so my going into my 54th year, which was 2020, I was like, this is it. I am owning this year. I mean, I was going to get like an old fashioned, seriously, like, like a girl version of one of those earth, wind and fire, LeMay jumpsuit, (laughs) you know, like the whole thing. And then COVID happened. And then fast forward to turning 56 and 57. I, so I hadn't had photos done for my website all that time. And we were trying to do some things. So I had um, some photos done and I looked at the photos and I had the same thing. I was like, oh my God, I like look so much older. And I realized what it was, wasn't actually my face. It was, I didn't have as much sparkle in my eyes because the 54 thing never quite happened. And then there was COVID and it felt like I had this feeling of like, losing a couple of years in my life. And then suddenly I was in a different age range. Like I was over the 55 and that I internalized that in some way. And I realized for me, there had been a very variety of family stressors, COVID had happened, just different stuff. And so for me, I like to pick a word every year. And so my, I saw that in your book, I was like, oh my God, this is like, this is like a sister from another mother here. So my word for the year has been rewild. So for me, it's about reconnecting with my deeper self, but it's also about reclaiming those practices, those simple everyday practices. A word I want to go into 2024 with is glow. Well, I got that from reading your book because I think part of what you were reclaiming is, I think you may even said it was refinding your glow or your friend had said, oh, you're glowing. And I thought, oh, what is it that creates glow? Like, how can I go into 2024 really using, because for me, when I pick a word and I'm imagining it's for you too, it almost becomes sort of like the compass by which I make decisions. You know, what are the things that create glow? And it's the joy, all those things. I just loved all the things. I feel like your book is a guide to reclaiming those things. You shared with me, you said that you believe one of the biggest ways we can fight ageism is by addressing our own internalized ageism. And you used some examples that I thought were really, really powerful, like how we think of the word old and what that means, or when we think of the word young. So can you talk about how you sort of woke up and realized you were like, oh, I've got this internalized ageism and how these show up unwittingly for us as women in our culture at any age, but especially as we do get older. Well, I mean, like you, like I said, I never worried about aging. And also I'm a lawyer by training and I had done a lot of work in age discrimination and that kind of thing. So I, I literally walked into this book with the arrogant belief that I was like, the oracle. And I will just tell you, oh, <laughs> aging is no problem. Why, why are you worrying? Why is anybody worrying? And one of the first people I interviewed for the book, who appears very early in the book, is the anti-ageism activist Ashton Applewhite, who is amazing. Love her, right? Um, she has a wonderful TED Talk. I encourage everybody to um, watch her TED Talk on ageism. And we were talking and I said, well, what are some of the things that you notice that people do that help perpetuate this sort of ageist idea and sort of internalized ageism. And she says, well, I'm really interested in how people use the words young and old. Like a lot of the times that's really problematic. And when she said that, I thought, well, I mean, young is young and old is old. What's the problem? Like there's, 
I don't understand. So I'm like, so say more. She goes, well, for example, I hear people say all the time, I don't feel old. And I said, yeah, I say that all the time myself. I don't feel old. Like, why is that a problem? And she was so gentle. She said, well, Karen, when you say I don't feel old, what I suspect you're saying is I don't feel invisible or I don't feel unsexy. And I said, okay, yeah, sure. That that is part of it. And so she said, well, I don't know about you, but when I was 13, I had spells when I felt invisible and unsexy. She goes, those aren't age-related attributes. And that was like, like it blew my mind. She goes, we use old as shorthand for bad and young for shorthand for good. And we don't even realize we're using it. You know, it was like sort of another mirror moment, honestly, because it was the first time that I had ever considered that my language might perpetuate ageist stereotypes. And so I really sort of interrogate a lot of my own language. Like I, it is rare I use the words old and young anymore, but I will use older or younger because the truth is at 56 now, like to my 20-year-old, my 19-year-old, I'm sure I seem very, very old, but to my 84-year-old mother, I seem very, very young. And so it's such a spectrum. So I might say to a younger person, well, I'm older than you, so my experience is X, as opposed to saying, well, I'm old, which we kind of just do without even thinking about it. Or senior moments, right? Oh, I can't find my keys as senior moments. Well, my daughter, my teenager loses stuff all the time and we don't call it a junior moment, right? So sort of really understanding how we use language. So that's one thing. The other thing about interrogating is also what are we accepting as okay for ourselves, which is actually ageist. So one of the things that Ashton used, this is her example, is when she went to the doctor because of her trick knee and her doctor said, oh, well, you're older now. So that's what that is. And she said, well, okay, but my other knee's the same age and it's fine. So can we please figure out what's going on with my knee, right? So that sounds like of, a joke. It sounds right? like an old like stand-up joke. Exactly, right? So so that that sort of idea or if somebody says, oh my gosh, you look great for your age, right? Oh, it drives me nuts. Right? Well, it drives you nuts, but there's, you know, there's a part of you that's like, oh, well, thank you. Well, you know what? I used I used to think that in my 40s, but now I'm thinking like, Okay, so how old do they think I am? So I'm like, it's flipped in my mind in a whole different way now. I'm like, but also, the and this is an Ashton thing as well is that the older they get, we the more diverse we get, right? So the the way that we age is it depends on a lot of socioeconomic things, like if we have access to healthcare. So there's a lot of that that helps, but also how much stress we've had in our lives as well. The way I look at 56 is going to be totally different from the way anybody else looks at 56. And so the idea of you look good for your age, right? It's like, I look like 56. 56 looks like this on me. It looks very different on Halle Berry. It looks very different, right? Like, and it's going to look very, very different and sort of really unpacking when somebody says something like that to you and you do feel a little bit of, oh, that's, you know, a little bit of zhuzh, but then also it's, there's a part of you that's like, is that okay, right? Why can't I just look good as opposed to for your age, right? And so just sort of understanding, like, when I buy this anti-aging cream, am I buying it because I don't want to look older or am I buying it because I actually just like how it feels on my face, right? Like, like, and really sort of interrogating our purchasing and understanding what our motivations are, I think is really, really important. It's so interesting. I, so I'm on, as you are, I'm sure video for social media a lot and other media things. And I didn't even own makeup until I was almost 40 and didn't color my hair and never would imagine myself even considering Botox or anything like that and totally understand why women do it. But I never would have even imagined that those thoughts would cross my mind. But one of the things I'm finding really interesting is that like, I watched the morning show recently and realized that many of the women in the show are our age and they don't look normal because they don't look our age, but they also look distorted because of all the filler and all the things. And, and I feel like, what if, what if we all just actually looked like whatever we look like naturally at the age that we're at, how would that also ease our perceptions of ourselves in our culture? So that's one thing I think about. And then the other thing is that I had a social media assistant who was 
26 or 28. And I was expressing to her that I'm kind of struggling a little bit with doing some direct to camera and being so like high def, but I don't want to use filters because that doesn't feel fully authentic to who I am and what I want people to see. And I said, I feel like being older, I'm really struggling with this. And she said something so life-changing to me, which is, oh, Aviva, I really respect that you feel that way. And I honor how you're feeling because you are 56, 57. But just so you know, like I feel this way about being on camera and I'm 20, whatever. And my friends who are in their early twenties feel that way too. It's like that there's so much pressure around what we look like at every age. It's nuts. At every age. It's really nuts. And it's, you know, what you're saying about how do we know what to look like, right? Like I find, I feel like for, let's just go with hair, right? Like I feel like you, when you see women in media and I'm talking famous women, right? Like they are all sort of preternaturally young, right? Like the, the JLo's and the Halle Berry's, right? Who still look like they did 30 years ago or if they have silver hair, it's supposed to be almost like, well, like you're impaired or you're just far, you know, like your 70s, 80s, 90s, right? Like, but you don't actually know what 50 looks like anymore. And I remember when I had just made the decision not to, to stop dyeing my hair, which is only in the last few years, one of the things that sort of propelled me to do it was I was watching a cop show and it was a British cop show. It was one with the older, wizened sort of detective, um, a man. And his young ingenue detective, like brand new detective, a woman, okay? And they zoomed in on her face at one point, and I noticed a silver hair. And I remember thinking, how old is she? So I Googled the actress, and I I wish I could remember the actress who it was, but the actress was 33 years old. And I remember thinking, you would never see that on an American show. You would never see a 33-year-old with a stray silver hair. You just wouldn't see it. Or like imperfect teeth or any of the things that when you watch a French or British show, you see much more of. But what I thought was interesting was that so normalized. I mean, I had a roommate in college who's beautiful white hair now, but she was, we were freshmen and she was already getting silver, right? She was- Yeah, my mentor, she was fully gray, fully silver haired, actually at like 35. And who would know that that is a thing from watching television, right? And so I I feel like there's a dearth of what does a woman in her mid-30s to her mid to 60 look like? Like, I feel like we don't really see it because we are so conditioned. And frankly, Hollywood is so conditioned, you have to look as young as possible. And that, I, I, I find that sad. That said, to your point, I would never judge anybody who uses fillers or who dyes their hair or anything like that, because we are in such an ageist society. There are serious consequences for some of these decisions. You know, like there was an anchor woman last year who went silver during the pandemic in Canada and she got fired for it, right? Um, Like you can lose your job. I've had single friends that tell me if I stop dyeing my hair on the dating apps, I'd never get a date again. Well, even women in corporate America who are saying that when they hit their mid fifties, if they're not doing some kind of facial, whether it's Botox and filler to look younger, they will be aged out, catacombed, as you say. I was late to start being gray and have continued to color my hair. And I'll tell you why. Two things. I'm not fully ready to be silver haired yet. And I don't know when that's coming, but I feel like it's coming soon. And also I noticed like during the pandemic, I didn't color my hair for like two years. So people can see like what my hair looks like when it's silver. It's kind of more salt and peppery. Um, I noticed that my clothing that I was wearing looked really different and my skin looked really different with my hair a different color to make, I mean, you can choose whatever the hell you wear, whatever the age you want to. But for me, the disconnect of that color hair and what I prefer to wear was really interesting. So it's a weird thing. So I do like natural Aveda, whatever, it's still doing it. And I definitely am like aware that I'm doing it and I don't judge myself. And again, I don't judge any woman. And I'm also really excited by this really big movement to see women 
going silver haired whenever that age is for them. I love it. I love it too. And, and yes, when I decided to go silver, it's very interesting what you said about how colors do look different. And I had like, I was like, I'm not wearing black again. I'm only going to wear color. And then I, I let my hair go silver and I've suddenly realized that I have a love affair with gray because I like how the gray looks with silver. Uh, but, but I had, I did have to sort of rethink about the clothing, the colors of clothing, because it does, it does make a difference, right? Supplements can be an important way to fill the gaps in our nutrition and can sometimes be a missing link in what conventional medicine doesn't have to offer. When it comes to a whole host of health concerns we face as women and mothers, finding supplements we can trust isn't always easy. Studies show us that sometimes what we think we're getting isn't actually what's in the bottle. Enter Fullscript, the company I use to meet my own, my family's, and my patients' supplements needs. With over 300 professional quality products carefully curated to meet our needs from preconception to postpartum, menstrual health to menopause, and our overall wellness, and for products for our children and our partners too. Fullscript attests to the quality of their products getting you as close as possible to what the products say is on the package. And I'm committed to bringing these to you more affordably. If you use the link avivaram.com forward slash supplements, you'll find an automatic 15% discount on every order. And because my work is mission-driven, I make a percentage of profits available to organizations improving maternal health. Don't worry, you'll find the links in the show notes. Join me in getting better nutritional and herbal supplements for you and yours while doing good for mamas and babies too. One of the things that I think is so profound and powerful is to realize just how insidiously culturally driven our beliefs about aging are. Like, I think sometimes we think that what we think is free will and independent thought. And then we're like, oh, actually, no, I'm seeing this everywhere. And your research really revealed a lot about the fear and loathing that we have in our culture specifically. And when I say culture, I mean our Western sort of patriarchal, commodities-driven, centric culture and how this is also very different from both a hundred years ago, say, and other cultures. So what are some of the biggest sort of ahas that you had from that? Yeah. So this was the first, and it's funny because I don't know that I was going to go into this in the book until a very good friend of mine, who is also like a person who does not fear aging. I asked her, I was like, I'm writing this book on joyful aging. And what is something you wish a book like this touched on? And she sort of looked at me and she goes, I'd be really interested to know whether we always hated aging. And I thought that's a really interesting question. I, I will look into that. In my research, I stumbled upon the work of a Dr. Laura Hirschbein, who is a medical historian and a psychiatrist. And she wrote a medical article about our perception of aging from 1900 to 1950, so the first half of the 20th century. So the way she looked at her research was she looked at popular magazines that were written during that time and figuring that popular magazines would sort of tap into the zeitgeist of what people were feeling. And she found that in the 1900s, most articles about aging were written by people who were in advanced years in their 70s, 80s, 90s, say. And they loved it. They loved being older. They were like, this is great. I feel like I'm the keeper of tradition. I feel like I'm wiser now. Yeah, okay, I have a backache or something like that. But whatever downsides there are to getting older, they're far outweighed by the upsides, right? And so people really loved getting older. I think one of the articles talked about the gift that America has in their octogenarians. Okay, fast forward two world wars in a Great Depression. And what was happening was that all of these 70, 80, 90 year olds were continuing to work because they loved working. But 30 year olds, 20 and 30 year old, primarily men, weren't able to get jobs. And so the US government decided. What we're going to do is we're going to institute a mandatory retirement age so we can get these older people out of the workforce. So now that there's some jobs for these young 30, 20, 30 year olds to support their families, men primarily, right? So now 
all of these people who are 65 and older are now, and I'm using air quotes, burdens on society because they are not contributing to the economy, right? So that was that. So now it's starting to look bad for people who are getting older, right? So they're like literally in the way for younger people. Pediatricians, child psychologists decide to expand their research into what happens when you get older, right? Because geriatrics really wasn't a thing at the time. And what they use as their standard for normal were five-year-olds. So basically, if you didn't have the cognitive ability of a five-year-old whose job it is to grow and learn, you're impaired. Or if you did not have the physical agility of a five-year-old, you're impaired. So now all of these articles are being written by these new this new research that is showing how impaired these people are because they are not as agile or as quick thinking as a five-year-old, right? So that adds to it. And then enter Clairol. Clairol comes in and says, well, you're aging. You don't want people to know you're aging. You better start dyeing your hair. So, and nowadays, 70% of women dye their hair in America. So literally between 1900 and 1950, we went from loving it to aging is a problem that needs to be fixed. And that is why, generally speaking, we hate aging, right? When I say it's literally the capitalist patriarchy, it is 100% that. It's not for anything else. And for me, just learning that was like, like Neo in the Matrix. Like it was, I just took the red pill. You can't unsee it, right? No, it's seriously, my <laughs> mind was blown as I was reading this. I was like, because there was a similar phenomenon after World War II where women who had been holding down the fort on jobs while the men were overseas fighting were similarly pushed out of access to jobs while men were given the jobs. And I had no idea that sort of this paired ageism sexism thing was happening. And it just makes so much sense. It's so stigmatizing too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's insane for sure. And then, you know, when you start to understand that, oh, this was created, this was created for us to believe this about aging. You suddenly realize that you have more agency to create and curate how you want to age going forward, right? Like when you start to realize get this is actually fabricated and I don't have to buy into that. I can take the red pill, right? I can see the matrix. I can create. Like this is what I want to do when I'm aging and there's really nothing stopping me from doing that. It's smoke and mirrors, really. It's so interesting. I just think about so many things like that like what we believe about pregnancy, what we believe about motherhood, like all these in sort of industrial, patriarchal, economically driven industries that get us to believe certain things that then get us to buy certain things. So we've got this global anti-aging market, right? And you cite that it's nearly like $37 billion internationally. And it's really invested in making everyone feel bad about getting older and especially women. And I want to swing back around, but there's this ageist factor in here. There's this sexist factor in here. You know, the World Health Organization has done this huge study in 2021 about ageism, and they say that it costs economies billions of dollars when people have ageist and views and one in two people all over the world have ages. And I think that that number, I'll have to go back and look in my own book for this, but I think that number, that 37 billion, I think that's just the US. I think it's actually a trillion dollar anti-aging industry and it's largely unregulated, right? And that's the thing, right? I think you you sort of mentioned it. The average target age for anti-aging products is 24 years old, right? So you're being targeted five years from your teenage years to buy these products. And of course, of course, they want you to fear aging because that's how they make their money, right? So it's it's going to be creams, it's going to be hair dye, it's going to be makeup, it's going to be clothing, it's going to be even like retirement homes. And all of that is tapped into that younger is better, older is bad. It's absolute smoke and mirrors. And it's so different traditionally and in other cultures, you know, it's funny coming from the framework of being a midwife and an herbalist, like there are two professions where as you get older and white haired, you're actually still seen with that kind of respect of an elder that we have lost in so much of our common culture, this idea of elderhood and this idea that we become invisible or unimportant. And I think Along with losing our vitality, I think so much of us fear becoming irrelevant because that is how our culture treats older folks. And I want to say, I listened to an interview. I don't know if you've listened to this podcast. It's um, 
Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Fantastic podcast, yeah. Amazing, right? Yeah. So did you listen to the Diane von Furstenberg one? I did. I loved it. So for those of you, I highly recommend it. Julia Louis-Dreyfus. She's got a podcast called Wiser Than Me, and she's in her early 60s at the time that Karen and I are having this conversation, but she's interviewing women who are in their later 60s, 70s, 80s, and so forth. And she interviews Diane von Furstenberg, who said, I don't ask people how old they are anymore. I ask people, how long have you lived? And she said, I might ask a six-year-old, so how long have you lived, little one? And I love that. How long have you lived? Love that reframing. Yes. Isn't it beautiful? It's such a, such a great way to reframe it. And uh, you know, we talked a little bit at the very beginning of this about language. It's like, how can we shape our language so that it's, a, and, and we do it not just to change the way society talks about it, but change the way our brains think of it. Like if you start thinking about, so Aviva, how long have you lived? Like that there's something so, um, not respectful, honoring. That's that word I'm thinking, like honoring. Like it's, it's that I'm going to honor that you have walked this earth for a certain amount of time and all the riches that has given you. And I want to sort of hear more about that. It's like a curious question, isn't it? It's curious. Yeah, it's a wonderful one. And, it, and less judgmental, which I think is really lovely. And loaded, right? There's so much value judgment. Old and older are kind of loaded words that we almost can't even fully reframe, like we need a different lens altogether. I was I was looking actually on Instagram today and one of the um, women that I follow on Instagram, she just celebrated her birthday. She's in her 60s. And she says, every time I celebrate my birthday, I always tell my people what my age is. But I'm wondering whether there's something to be said for not telling people your age because of how loaded the judgment is. And I remember, I, you know, I'm a person that I always tell people what my age is, but same here. But I was also very, very careful, and I say this in the book, not to say the age of the experts that I interviewed, because I don't want people to assume certain things. I want you to take their wisdom in for what it is, for what it's wisdom. And so unless they say their age, I don't provide it. There is something about that if I tell people I'm 55, there's sort of an assumption that comes with that. Um, and how do you take away the the assumptions from the age? Because age should not have that as much weight as people like to ascribe to it, right? Yeah. As I said, I'm a New Yorker, but I live two hours outside of the city in Massachusetts. And I was down in the city last week. The city, you can tell where yeah. I'm from, right? <laughs> I have friends who are like from Washington State or Oregon and they'll say, they'll say they're going down to the city. I'm like, what city? And they're like, <laughs> Los Angeles. I'm like, that is not the city. That's a city. Such a snob. So I was in New York. I told you about my Studio 54 idea. I was in New York last week and I said to my husband, because I have like, I have always loved my birthday since I was a kid. It's just, just, I love it. And then this past year, I was a little bit like, ooh, okay. And then so I'm in the city and I'm like, I had this idea. We were on 57th Street and I said to my husband, babe, I have an idea. Every year on my birthday for the rest of my life, I want to do something on a street in New York that is that age. So maybe I can like work my way all the way up to the one teens, yeah, which is where sure. I was born. I was born in Spanish Harlem. So if I can work my way all the way up to the one teens, like, okay, so next year I'm going to do something on 58th. And then the year after I'm going to do something on 59th. And I was like, that's a really cool idea. That is a cool idea. I know. I'm excited. <laughs> So one of the things you talk about in the book, and I think it's so powerful, is that we fear aging because we associate it with physical and mental decline. And yes, of course, I mean, maybe our knees do creak a lot. I'm like, wear and tear is just a normal thing of, of anything that lasts a long time. But ironically, like ageism shows up, as you said, in the medical system as a tendency to normalize symptoms and brush them off. I want to talk about two things, if you will. One, there is this assumption that as we get into our 50s, 60s, 70s, we have more likelihood of being depressed and less sex. And actually all the data is that people in those years are happier and actually research has shown it's not because we're more forgetful and we're forgetting the bad things. We're actually just have more perspective or we're just happier. And for women, 
and people in long-term relationships, sex gets better because we're more comfortable knowing what we want and articulating that. So I'd love to hear your thoughts and your like interaction with the research and people you've talked to about that. And then also like this dismissal of health concerns. Because the other thing that I, is really important that you talked about in the book that I found really enlightening and illuminating was the idea that we're also afraid that we're going to end up in nursing facilities and the data doesn't show that. So if we could talk about like depression, sex, ending up in nursing facilities, medical dismiss, all the things. For sure. So that, I mean, I think that's what a lot of people think. They think you're going to get older and you're going to end up in an institution somewhere drooling, forgotten in a wheelchair, in a fluorescent lit institution that's miserable, right? And it turns out that that is not true. That for one thing, for example, the rate of Alzheimer's is actually decreasing over time. Like the percentage of people who are suffering from Alzheimer's is actually going down, but we would not know that, right? Like we would, we think we're all going to end up with dementia. It's actually decreasing. People are living fully independently in their homes and not in institutions, then then or not. It's the, the percentages are something really, really small, like 8% or something like that. It's really, really small. I was shocked by that and like deeply relieved, partly also as a physician who has worked in nursing facilities, I will say like the specter of that can loom large and anyone who's had a family member in one, it can feel, especially if you're not loaded with money and can't go to the shishi ones that cost a million dollars a year, it can be scary. So I think that's such reassuring data. For sure. The other thing is, is there's, it's what they call the U-curve of happiness, um, that we tend to be happiest in our youth and then it drops in sort of midlife, honestly, like 30, and then it goes up again. It starts, you start to get happier. So people are actually not depressed. As they get older, they, you're actually more depressed in your younger years than in your older years. Generally, I'm speaking in huge generalizations here. Uh, I actually, I remember I, I talked to somebody, just personally, I talked to somebody when I turned 50 who was in their 60s and they said, oh, if you're loving 50, wait till you get to your 60s. And I said, is that true? And she had, there were a few people around and they said, um, absolutely. And I said, why do you think that is? And it was really interesting. What they said is like in your 50s, a lot of times you're dealing with children leaving, right? Children getting and trying to launch your children, but you're also managing aging parents. But by the time you get to your 60s, your parents may have gone, right? Your children should have fully launched by then in theory, and they're probably starting their own family. So now you're a grandparent, which is brings its own joy. And so it was really sort of like, I had never really sort of considered that stages. So if you think about it that way, that, that you are now, as you get older, you become more independent of having to care for people, which opens up a whole lot of possibility. And then plus you have these now younger people that are part of your life that can help bring you joy, like these grandchildren. So it's sort of this really interesting, um, what we think about the stages of life as opposed to the ages of life. If you think about the stages that happen when the grandkids start coming and, you know, and retirement allows you some more freedom, hopefully, if you can, if you can afford to retire, that things can start to be a little bit happier. Also, I just want to add from the women I know who I take care of in my medical practice and for myself, like it may also be that you're 60 and not choosing to retire at all because you finally have the freedom to like do that thing that you've wanted to do to study that thing or start that business, which is an amazing thing too. And do the, and that was again, when I said, like, I didn't understand why people were so like fearful of aging when my experience of my friends in my age or older were that they were doing just that. They were starting new businesses or winning Emmys or becoming playwrights. And they were starting to do these really, really exciting things. Yeah. Travel. For sure. Travel. And there were so many of these other potentialities. And I think that, I think that's what Honestly, if we get down really to the root of why people are afraid of aging is that they don't realize how much potential there is, right? Like there's so much potential in coming years. Like I come from a family of long livers, right? So my I have a grandmother who died at 102. So, but even if you don't, you know, let's say 80 is the average life expectancy. Well, when you get to 40, like you have your entire life again to live, except this time you don't have to learn how to walk or talk or go to school. Like you've already got all that experience, right? You know what you like, you know what you don't like, and you have your entire life again to live. Like that is a huge amount of potential. 
that's right there in front of, and I think a lot of times we don't think that we're inundated with the 30 under 30 lists and what, you know, have you achieved what you wanted to achieve by a certain age? And it's like, but who said that you had to do that? Like I am way more experienced and smarter and self-assured and have more self-knowledge at this age than I did even 10 years ago, right? Even at 45, even at it's far, certainly 35 or 25. And so when you start to think about the potentiality of what's ahead, that's when you can start to get really, really excited about um, what to do. And then also like, don't take no for an answer. Like my friend Ashton did with her knees, right? Like if, if something is bothering you, then get the answers you need to be able to get them treated. It's about curiosity and not taking no for an answer, I think is really the key to aging well. the things that you cite in the book is research on not just the negatively internalized stereotypes and beliefs about aging, but the profound impact that can have on us. So much so one study at least showed that people with a more positive and curious perception of aging live on average seven and a half years longer. And that's actually a huge amount of time. And those are seven and a half good years too. Yes. Those aren't like seven and a half years that are impaired. That's good, solid, happy years, which is great. Yes. And we know that in cultures, um, Dan Butner's work on blue zones really shows that in these blue zone cultures where it's not just how people live, although that's a part of it. And I want to swing back around to that, but like these are often cultures with better attitudes about being older people do live into those sometimes nano and centigenarian years of so those nineties and hundreds, again, still independent, which is really important because so many people in our culture, and believe me, I've worked in geriatrics in hospitals. It ain't pretty if we're not taking care of ourselves. And we tend to really medicalize those last couple of decades. So what do you think about this phenomenon of, I mean, to me, it's like such an incentive, even if I do feel have like negative thoughts about aging. I don't want to judge those. I mean, we live in a culture that bathes us in them, but it sets an incentive for me to be conscious of those and to work to reframe those. Tell me what you think explains this phenomenon. I can only, a lot of this is very anecdotal and I've definitely, I've read Dan Buettner's, um really interesting books. And there's a lot of things like um, he talks about as like legumes, like what to eat and stuff like that, which is all well and good. But for me, the thing that I think is really, really potent is the concept of ikigai, I think he talks about, which is finding meaning and purpose in your work. And I will say just sort of anecdotally, when I think of like in my own immediate life, my dad is an octogenarian and is he rides 15 miles a day and he's very, very active. And he really, really is somebody who loves life, right? Like he loves life. And he's never been plagued by any worry of getting older, but also he is so curious and he has really tapped into that ikigai. Like for him, it's teaching. He loves teaching. And so he volunteers at to tutor kids in math. My dad has a PhD in petroleum engineering and he tutors like elementary school and middle school kids and math because that's really, really what he loves. And that's something that he's been able to use his experience as an engineer in order to give back to kids. And I think that sort of constant what is the way that I can give back to my community? What is the way I can give back to my family, to my friends, to that sort of what is something that really sort of lights me up? And I have another book called The Lightmaker's Manifesto, which is all about that, right? Like all about tapping into our inner activists to make light. I think that that gives us purpose to be here. And that's why it becomes very, very fulfilling to get older because you're all constantly thinking about ways that you can serve and ways that you can help and bring meaning to your own life and potentially to others. And I think there's something very, very, even more than the, the legumes or whether or not you drink red wine or how much sweet potatoes you eat. Like, I think way more than that is that idea of really sort of continuing to search for things that give you meaning and give meaning to your communities. I think that that honestly is might be the elixir of life. I really think it might be. It's really profound when we connect the dots between that and this, whether it's a sort of forced retirement age or a culturally common retirement age that then leads people to sort of 
putz around and be marginalized. And especially we talk about having grandchildren at this time in our lives, but so many of us live quite far from our grandchildren, actually. Sometimes we get to a certain age, we're not at our purpose-driven jobs anymore, or even if they weren't purpose-driven, but it was something that gave our days structure and meaning and engaged us. And then our family members are far away. I think that this finding purpose and meaning, if you don't already have it, is so, so important. And when we look at some of these cultures that Dan Buettner talks about, people aren't marginalized. The goat herders are still doing their goat herding. The people who are the baker in the community or the doctor. He talks about the um, Seventh-day Adventist community where there's one doctor he talks about who's still practicing in his 90s very competently. I think those are also, I agree, like such important pieces. And the revere of coming to an elder for advice or guidance that was more common years, decades ago than it is now, where we may think, oh, they don't know. They're older. They don't even know how to use the internet. You know, (laughs) we have these like tropes, right? Right. And we don't even think about it. Like when you talk about like DEI work, right? Uh, Diversity, equity, inclusion. Like often we think about them in terms of race or we think of it as gender, or we may even think about it as for religion, but we rarely think about it with age. And I think that having sort of a multi-generational communities, whether or not it's at work or it's in volunteering or it's in something like that, is it only makes that community richer. And sort of understanding that the person who may not understand the latest social media app, because that's just not something that they grew up with, has something else like uh, that can help provide context, right? Like the, the idea of experience and tradition and being able to provide context around whatever that community is working toward, I think is something that is often dismissed. And it doesn't really make sense because we're all aging, right? Like no matter what, we're all, you know, try as I might, I am never going to be a member of the LGBTQ community or the Jewish community, right? But I am going to be one day a member of the older, or if I'm not there already, the older or the elder community. And that to me is really, it's really short-sighted on our part to not include that as part of when we consider about inclusive communities to be able to think of age in the same way. Absolutely. Speaking of communities, I want to ask you uh, what you think about this. I read a book a few years ago by Barbara Ehrenreich. And in her book, uh, which she wrote before she passed, and I think she might've been in her 80s when she was writing it, it was a little bit of a hard book to read for me, I think, in that it was very reflective of life at her age. I think reading it now with a different lens and the lens of your book, I'll think I'll find more riches in it. But rather than it made me, somehow I felt sad when I read it. But one of the things that she talked about that I thought was incredibly important and a big takeaway for me was the actual importance of being in community with other women, but also specifically other women in our peer age group. And she talked about for herself, and this is a little bit morbid, I guess, and sad, but it's it's the reality for women in marriages to men, we tend to outlive our male partners. And for so many women at a certain age, that is a very significant life change. And being in groups of women who are our relative age peers, she talks about how, for one, it normalizes what you're going through. You have other women to share it with and discuss. And I remember when I started first having skipped periods in my, like I was around 51. Actually, I was 50 because it was my best friend from middle school. Since we've been 12, she's three months older and it was her birthday. And I said, ah, I've been like having irregular periods for three months. And she said, oh, I started having that six months ago. And then, oh, I'm having this. And she's like, oh, I'm having that too. It was like, oh, this is just where we're at. This is what's happening. And it it made it shared and beautiful. And then she also talks about the importance of these communities as we do move into those years where we may need companionship because we, our partners aren't there anymore, our parents aren't there anymore, our children are launched into the world. What are your thoughts on that? Or did you come across anything about that in, in your work? Yeah. So I talk a lot about how important community is, right? Like I think that's, um, and our need for community tends to change, right? When we're in our 20s, uh, we think of 
a fulfilling community as one, like we can go out constantly. And it's not necessarily that we have deep conversations with these people, but we're going to the club or we're going to, you know, we're playing a sport or something like that. Like it's sort of not based on any sort of depth of conversation necessarily, right? As we get older, that depth of conversation becomes even more important, like being able to have uh, maybe a few confidants. It's not so much about having all the people that you can have at all the parties. It's much more about having those few people that you can really sort of have those deep conversations with. And then there's apparently another stage afterwards where it's sort of a hybrid. Like you don't need that sort of deep conversation, but it's nice to have a few companionable people around you. Just to have their company is enough. That was research that I came across that I hadn't really considered very much. But the truth is that loneliness can be such a killer. Dr. Vivek Murphy, the Surgeon General, wrote a great book about it called Together. And as we get older, it's important for us to cultivate friendships and community. Like It just becomes more and more important. The data on it for women particularly is so staggering in terms of our like risk of heart attack as a result of loneliness more than Obesity, cigarettes, and diabetes, which is like when you think about that, is nuts. So, yes, for sure, it needs to do it. What I think is really interesting, I, I have not heard this research about having a peer community of your age. My father definitely has that. And I talk about it in the book about his community that he has of people that he's known since he was like 10 and 11 years old, that every Friday they Zoom. They're, you know, my, my family's from the Caribbean. A lot of them are still in the Caribbean. Some of them are in the United States and they Zoom every Friday for a few hours. That's beautiful. Which is great. One thing I did not touch on in the book and has actually come up as I've done book events and that kind of thing is the importance also of multi-generational relationships and how maybe we shouldn't have only friends of our age, but also have friends of people who are much younger and much older. And how do we cultivate that? Which has been really great food for thought because I don't talk about it in the book. And it's something that I, for me, feels like it's missing from the book. I wish I had explored that more. And as a confirmed introvert myself, it's difficult for me, but I'm really trying to sort of figure out how can I cultivate those relationships, not just with people my age, but people of different ages. And I think the way to do that is by pursuing interests, right? And finding yes. communities yes. around interests, because it's hard to just like walk up to like an 80-year-old or a 20-year-old and go, hi, would you be my friend? <laughs> yeah, no, I went into town recently. Uh, my daughter and I were having a little Saturday together and we had some coffee and we walked around. It was a rainy day and we walked into the knitting shop. I've knit since I was a little girl. My grandmother. My great-grandmother, my mother, my stepmother, everyone knit. And I've never really extended past a basic knit pearl and a, and a like, I can do a rib, but we were like, oh, let's get a little project together. So we went in and it was amazing. I think the woman who was like clerking the store was probably in her twenties. There was a knitting class happening in the back of the room and it was so multi-generational. And yeah, just like the simple act of like handwork and a social group that's intergenerational, even in a little knitting store in a little town in Western Massachusetts felt so tribal and so organic to how women have gathered. I loved it. Yeah. I think there's something to it. I had not considered, like I said, the peers. And I think that there's, there's some real richness in that concept. It's really both. And I had a moment about I don't know, a year ago. And I woke up at like three in the morning as menopausal women are sometimes want to do. And I did. I had worries on my mind and it was worries about being older and living in a somewhat rural, I live on a dirt road on seven acres and my husband is 10 years older. And I was just having some worries about that. So I got up in the middle of the night and I decided to journal out what my problem was that I was worrying about. And I just free wrote. And what came up for me was like, okay, you can worry about this or you can just cultivate community. And it just became an intentional, like, I'm going to reach out to the woman who lives two doors up the road, who is a student in my herbal course and not be shy about having a student who is also a friend. She's yeah. a peer or just having these intergenerational relationships. And so that brings me to intentionality before we wrap, uh, I could really talk with you forever. <laughs> and I, I don't say this lightly and I never bullshit. And I don't really take, I mean, I've like had like two ads ever on my podcast. I don't promote things I don't believe in. And I truly want to say to you from the bottom of my heart, like I could cry right now. Actually, I feel teary um, that I feel that your book for me 
is the most profound medicine for my soul right now. And I am deeply grateful. And it's just such a powerful reframe. I mean, I'm 57. I could live 40 more years, 50 more years. And, you know, I've really been just deeply taking in, and this is the case at any age, whether we're 20, 30, 40, 50, 80, how do we want to live? Do we want to live with worry about the future or do we want to live and embrace every second of it with curiosity and intention? So thank you. And where I want to go with that is I know one of the things that you did to sort of reclaim your glow as we you know, circle back to the top of the conversation, you made some intentional decisions to unstress or de-stress and relight that pilot light. Are there some things that you do every day that you are really non-negotiable about or try to weave in that you feel have made a deep difference for you in in relighting that pilot light and keeping it glowing? That's such a great question for you to ask me now because I'm literally coming off of a huge travel season because of the book and for various other reasons where I have stopped doing some of those non-negotiable things and I'm it's like when we need it most we stop doing it. absolutely and I and I'm returning like literally this week I'm returning to a lot of those but it's actually been a sort of a gift to not do them because I've realized why it's so important to me because I'm realizing what I'm missing to it so um a couple of things uh first of all I think I mentioned earlier is sleep is a really really big thing for me um it's huge and I really try to get between 6 and 8 hours of sleep usually around 7 hours of sleep every night um and I know I'm just I operate better if I have my 7 hours of sleep but I I, I I'm just a better nicer more productive person so that's one thing that's sort of probably at the top of my list hydrating water water is everything water is life weirdly for me movement I've never been athletic but I have learned that having a cadence of movement of some kind helps me exorcise stress out of my body. <laughs> I love that. You know? And so I jump rope, I hula hoop, I, I have a rowing machine. I hula hoop. Do, do you? Excellent. I, I hula do. hooping is so much fun. Because I hate exercise so much, I only move in ways that are fun for me. And so hula hoop is one of those joyful things. And so I try to do that at least five days a week. And, and I tend to eat pretty pretty well. But I also, I have decided to give up guilt around eating. Yay. So I love, I eat well anyway, but I don't feel bad if I want to like potato chips. Like I, I just don't feel bad about it. Um, or I tell people that I'm a weightiest and that I don't weigh myself. I Like I won't get on a scale. Oh, I love that. That's brilliant. So I'm a total weightiest. I really tap into how am I feeling in my body to decide whether or not I'm going to skip the chips this time or not and how my clothes are fitting. But I don't use a scale because I would I spiral into obsession when I do that. Yeah. And I know that about myself. So I mean, that's a whole other conversation we can have. And I just want to say you address weight, aging, menopause really beautifully in the book. Thank and you. the futility of fighting against some of it, which I'm so distressed by the um profound emphasis along with anti-aging on somehow maintaining your sixth grade weight. (laughs) Yeah. Well, even like your thirties and forties weight after menopause. And that's like a whole other thing. It's sort of like saying I'm pregnant, but I'm going to weigh what I weighed when I wasn't pregnant. No, something different is happening in your physiology now. And how do we also embrace seasons? Yeah. Well, I will say, and I want to get this on the podcast because I, it was something that I learned that I did not understand. There is a theory that the reason it is harder to lose weight when you get to midlife is it's evolutionary because it's apparently harder to keep on weight when you get in your later years. And so your body is keeping the weight on so that when you get to your 80s and 90s, there's something there for your body to work with because it's harder to keep it on. And when I learned that, I was like, I'm going to stop fighting my body anymore. Like I'm just, I, I want to be healthy. I want to move. I want to eat good food. I want to hydrate. I've cut down on the alcohol. I've, I'm doing a lot of stuff that's good for me, but I'm not doing it to get into my clothes from my twenties. I would say the one thing with, you know, that I do really encourage women once we hit fifties or, or menopause is the alcohol. Like, I think that's just the one thing it does not serve us in any way. It makes pretty much everyone miserable. I look at the, um, weight and estrogen because when our ovaries stop producing estradiol, our brain and our bones and our hearts and many other functions still need estrogen. 
And where else can we produce it? We produce some in our adrenals, but we also produce it in our fat cells. And so there's that wisdom of like, oh, I've got a little more fat on my hips and my butt and all the places, which for me, I like having a little bit of a booty. I've never had a little booty before. So um, I got a little, not much of one, but uh, yeah, that's a, another way we produce estrogen. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. All right. This is going to be an odd question, okay. but you'll get it. This is, this is the question I like to ask all my guests, but you'll get where I'm coming from because I do use the word younger, uh-huh. but this is a wisdom question. If you could tell your younger self one thing, what age would she be? And what would you tell her? Oh, that's a great twist on that question. What age would she be? And what would I tell her? I probably, she would probably be maybe in her twenties, somewhere in her twenties, maybe 25. And I would tell her, trust your intuition, relax. It's all going to work out in the end. That's what I would tell her. Karen, we will put all the contacts for you in the show notes, but for people who just never go to the show notes, where can they find you? What are the best places? And yes, everyone get this book, Radiant Rebellion, (laughs) get it for your mom, get it for your grandmom, get it for your daughter. So she understands, get it for your partner, get it for everybody. And I have no, I have no horse in the race. I don't get paid a penny. I'm just like, game changer. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. You know, you can find me, my website is chukalunks.com, which is a really hard word to remember. So the easiest way to remember it is karenwalrond.com, K-A-R-E-N-W-A-L-R-O-N-D. And that will take you everywhere to the Substack, to the Instagram, to the Facebook. It'll take you everywhere else. So karenwalrond.com. Amazing. And just in case anyone doesn't believe me, I'm just going to say, this is what the cover says. I'm here for every page and all the hell raising. And that's Brené Brown. Yes. (laughs) God bless her. (laughs) Yeah. All right, Karen. I hope you are in my life for a long, long, long time. I feel like I met not just another author and wise woman, but actually a friend. So thank you for everything you've contributed to my life already and to the lives of women and Thank you for being here. And thank you everyone for joining us. It's such an honor to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.